Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm Bill Kelly. As eligibility for second vaccine doses opens up across the country, many Canadians are quickly joining the fully vaccinated group. So why do we have guidelines of what we can and can't do? We'll discuss that. Ontario has accelerated its return to play plan for professional and elite amateur leagues right across the province. We're going to talk with the minister in charge, Lisa McLeod, about how this is going to roll out. And according to a new survey, two-thirds of Canadians knew little to nothing about residential schools before the discovery of the 215 graves in Kamloops. Dr. Paulette Steves joins us to talk about that. The Bill Kelly Podcast starts now. Today on The Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. The economy and a number of other things are all uh, reliant upon the fact of us getting back into stores uh, and doing things like going to sporting events and going across the border for holidays and having Americans come across here. Uh, But we're not quite sure exactly what we should be doing or what we can be doing, even though many of us are getting the vaccination. Some of us are getting even to the second shot right now. Uh, Yesterday, uh, during her daily press conference, uh, Dr. Teresa Tam, Canada's top doctor, was responding to a question about what guidance will be given for people who are now fully vaccinated and what restrictions might be relaxed going forward. You do have to know your hometown and what's going on there and follow local public health advice. I think that's the first piece. you got to track and listen to your local public. They will have rules and they will be relaxing them in different ways. But really is about everybody getting two doses of vaccine and protecting each other. Otherwise, how are you supposed to go check someone else's vaccine status? Well, uh, that's one of the questions, obviously. Uh, there's been a number of uh, different statements made by uh, federal leaders and provincial leaders about this, uh, the border being one of the main issues here, especially as we're heading into summer months, which is a tourism hotbed for an awful lot of people. Joining us to talk about what we can be doing and the impact it might have is uh, Moshe Landau, who is a senior economist lecturer with uh, Concordia University. Uh, Moshe, thank you so much, uh, as always, for joining us. Uh, great you could be with us here today. My pleasure. Let's ask uh, right up front here, but the impact that the government messaging has on this. I understand the policies, and we, we don't want to get ahead of ourselves here. We're concerned about the, the variants that, that are out there. We all get that, I think. But isn't there a little bit of a reopening envy going on when we see our neighbors to the south and in other parts of the world uh, attending sporting events and, and, and going to restaurants and seeing that revival in the economy? There's, I think, a burning desire for us right now to say, hey, why can't we be doing that? Yeah, I, I think for sure there's a little bit of envy there. If you're watching the NBA playoffs or the NHL playoffs, right, we've got one Canadian team left, and they're going to have 2,500 fans in their arena. You're just seeing down in Tampa that it's, it's jam-packed. But like Dr. Sam said, everybody's going to move at their own pace in a way that makes their citizens feel comfortable. And, you know, I think in Canada in general, we're a little more risk-averse than the Americans to begin with. Uh, and certainly the way that some of the southern states have approached it is very different than the way we've approached it here. And I think that's why we're seeing a, a bit of a difference. Let's talk about the border situation. Uh, again, uh, Dominic Blanc, the minister in charge uh, earlier this week, uh, said that discussions were underway with the Americans right now. Uh, we're told, Moshe, that a lot of the pressure is actually coming uh, not from the Biden administration, but from some of the states, the bordering states, that are just saying, look, at, you know, we want Canadians over here spending their money. And, of course, we all know that the, you know the other side of that coin is is there's a a huge huge demand right now and desire uh to get american tourists up here as well uh the 21st of the month is is when this uh this border regulation that's in charge uh is set to expire Uh, every month they've done this i think for the last 14 months they've simply extended it i'm anticipating they're going to do that again this month yeah i'd be really surprised if they didn't there there would there'd have to be some sort of forward guidance given that on the 21st, I mean, that's, that's next week, right, that yeah. those restrictions are going to be lifted. You could imagine what would happen then if it's kind of like, you know, waving the, the flag to start off the race here and everybody's going to head for the border. Uh, Canadians must be uh, really upset right now that we're seeing a strong Canadian dollar. There's no better time for a U.S. getaway than, than when the dollar's strong like that. But I, I have a feeling that we're going to see at least one more month, and we might even see two more months uh, killing off the summer tourist season uh, just to make sure that everybody across Canada is getting that second vaccine and, and really reducing the risk. This It's caused considerable damage to, well, let's talk about hospitality and tourism, uh, especially here in southern Ontario, but I mean, right across the border up in, into Quebec too, of course, people uh, from, from Maine and, and Massachusetts and Vermont and so many other places love to go over there and, and, and visit some of the great sites in Quebec during the summer months as well. Uh, how are the operators going to be able to handle this? I mean, when they, they, they can see the light at the end of the tunnel, but we're not there yet. No, um, 
we're not. And, you know, if you are in that summer tourism business, this is probably bad news because it's the second consecutive year that you're going to lose your business. And it's not the type of thing that we can make back by having two summers next year. Uh, so it's, it's probably business that's gone forever. If there is a plus side to any of this, the fact is that whatever makes Canada attractive as a tourist destination is still going to be there uh, once we get those second vaccines and once we go back to fully reopening. So the, the positive news then is that, say, summer 22 is going to hopefully be business as usual again. And so it's really just a matter then of looking to the government at this point saying we have a viable business model. You need to provide us with support because we don't have the ability to execute that business because of government restrictions. Uh, if the government jumps in and provides that support, then you know what? There, there's a bright future ahead for a lot of that tourism industry. There's going to be some trepidation. I think you and I have talked about that in the past, even when the restrictions are lifted, and it's probably going to be incremental, I, I'm supposing. Uh, but, you know, we, we hear about the Delta variant, and we're concerned about that, and we don't want to see a fourth wave. And Dr. Tam clearly is being very cautious about this. But let's let's talk about government messaging in this. And, and you know, she was, as I say, kind of dancing around the issue uh, when she answered the question yesterday, simply saying, well, it depends on where you are and who you are. And uh, that, that makes sense. I understand that to a point. But contrast that with, for instance, what the Center for Disease Control did south of the border when they started uh, easing their restrictions. Uh, and, and basically, they said, okay, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. You don't need to wear masks in public. You don't need to do this. You can gather in uh, outdoor spaces and things of this nature. In other words, they kind of said you know, exactly what you can and can't do, which seems to have created a sense of confidence uh, for consumers to say, you know what, it's okay, we can go out now. The, 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 the experts say we can. We're not getting that from, from Canadian government officials or if the Canadian medical officials for that matter too is is that something that we're going to need and that they're going to have to roll out at some point yes and no I, I mean I think in general Canada has much more than the US been kind of a provincial level uh, regulator right we, we have that across the board in the way that we approach education the way that we approach how healthcare is delivered uh, you know the way that we spend on infrastructure projects and things like that it, it's very provincial rather than kind of the federal government lays down the law States might have a, a lot more freedom, too, the way we can see the difference in, in the southern states versus, say, the northeast. But, yeah, I, I, on the other hand, I, I agree that there at least needs to be a common message that, uh, you know, kind of step one, step two, step three, like what Ontario was going through, uh, making that much more publicly visible within Ontario, even if the other provinces are going to go a different way, is key for each province to make sure that its citizens know what it can and can't do. Um, you know, I had to look up this morning to kind of see what precisely is the step one, step two, step three process for Ontario. Um, but the fact is that I, I shouldn't have to look that up, right? That should be constantly in my face telling me every single day, here's how close we are to reaching step two. Here's how close we are to reaching the 70% vaccination, or here's how close we are. And that's going to give people confidence too. So even if other provinces are doing different steps or different uh, timelines, uh, at least within your micro life, you know how you're proceeding because you know how close we are to the, the various goals. Yeah, your point's well taken. I mean, you look at well, even the idea about professional sports, you know, where the, the CFL is going to be playing again. That's great. Uh, you know, Jason Kenny out in Alberta basically said, look at Calgary and Edmonton. You guys fill the, fill the stadium. That's fine. You know, we're, we're at that point. Uh, here in Ontario, well, we'll find out for the minister in a couple of minutes when she joins us, but we're not there yet. Uh, Quebec, as you say, the uh, Premier Legault is being very cautious about that as well. Uh, I'm, I'm sure that the, the Canadians would love to have 16,000 people at the Bell Centre for the first game back there, but that's just not going to happen at this stage, is it? No. Um, I, I know that there was talk about raising that limit because Game 3 is, is in a few nights, but I, I can't see again that you want to start ending uh, 15 months of public health rules and regulations because the Canadians are on some sort of magical run, right? Um, this merely prompts the, the pushback from everybody else who has some other favoured industry or some sort of favoured activity saying, well, why are there exceptions being made here? where for the last 15 months we haven't been able to do A, B, and C. So, you know, I, I think there too, it, it's going to be one of those things that you need to give a clear message. And because most of us are not dealing outside of our local neighborhood or our local city, uh, the fact is that if you at least tell me what I can do within the two square kilometers in which I live, uh, I'm much more comfortable about going on with my life. And if that means that I can't attend a sporting contest, you know what, uh, much as I'd love to, it's not the end of the world if you tell me that there's a light at the end of the tunnel that in two months, three months, we might all have the second vaccine uh, at a level that we can ditch all of the, the suffering that we've gone through breaking.
Well, yeah, and that was part of the CFL plan, obviously, you know, to start the season in August. And uh, I guess most of the Western teams are going to be at home, but, I mean, the Eastern teams are going to have to – well, they already have uh, modified the schedule so that they're back here, hopefully in time for those bigger seats. Uh, now, with Phase 1 that we have here in Ontario, Moshe, is a lot of the stores that were not considered to be essential are starting to reopen right now with limitations, only so many people allowed in the store. Uh, the fact that there are long lineups – I live right beside a big commercial district here in Ancaster – uh, you know, outside of Hamilton, uh, part of Hamilton, actually. And uh, there, on, a, on a given day here, at a, at a Winners or at Home Sense or at the Costco, uh, you've got 50 to 60, 100 people lined up right now. That, that kind of indicates to us that uh, they're ready, willing, and able to participate in the economy again. Just open the doors a little wider. Yeah, I, I think that we're going to see a, a great recovery uh, in the first 6 to 12 months when things really do get back to normal. Uh, you know, well... Uh, there's been a lot of suffering and, and a lot of uh, government support that was necessary. The fact is that as the government starts to pull back on their support, uh, the private sector is going to jump and raring to go, whether it's through you know, business investment or trying to uh, refill those storefronts that are sitting idle, right? The, the space is still there. It's still uh, ready to be used. It's just somebody has to jump in and say, I'm in. And consumers are ready to go because we want to kind of make up for lost time. And so there's certain activities that... Uh, we're going to race back into it as quickly as we can and uh, enjoy some of those experiences the way that we kind of remember them from 18 months ago. The federal government, though, and I guess to a certain extent the provincial governments, and for the most part have been forthcoming about coming in with assistance packages. Uh, the CERB comes to mind, but there's some other things that they're trying to do for small business, especially at the federal level. Uh, but a week or two ago, the prime minister seemed to indicate there's going to be a sunset clause on that. Uh, these people aren't going to get back on their feet right away, these, these restaurant owners, shop owners, things of this nature. I mean, they're probably going to need some sort of a leg up for, from government for at least a while, aren't they? Yeah, and I, I think probably one of our future chats is going to be, are they phasing it out too quickly or are they phasing it out uh, too slowly, right? It, it's going to be a, a real difficult exercise to try and find that right amount of phase-out. It does have to be phased out at some point. Uh, do it too quickly. And small business owners in particular might find it very difficult to get back on their feet, do it too slowly, and we could be talking about an even bigger deficit, an even bigger debt, uh, even longer payback period, and the, the prospect of higher taxes coming sooner rather than later. So uh, every provincial government is going to have a really tight rope that they have to walk in trying to make sure that they balance that trade-off between helping small business owners while not saddling future generations with, with big tax burdens. And you always wonder what this is going to look like. As I say, even if we're, we're bang on with our assumptions here, that consumers are going to be there, ready uh, to, to participate in the economy again in whatever way they can. Uh, it's, it's, it's a matter of how much income is going to be there. Like you say, that's income that, that probably is not going to be recouped in any way, shape, or form, uh, given the fact that most of these places have been closed for most of the year already. Uh, You've got to figure the governments are aware of that. And it's, is, is this going to be a federal or a provincial responsibility or a shared responsibility? Yeah, it, it's going to be shared, right? The same way that we saw that it, during the, the height of the crisis, it was a shared responsibility. Um, usually what tends to happen is the provinces go cap in hand to the federal government, and the federal government, of course, is going to push back and try and push it as much down on the provinces as possible. And so we've seen, uh, you know, even going back 20, 25 years ago, when the federal government was trying to rein in the then record deficits, uh, it, it was accomplished to some extent by shifting a lot of that burden onto the provinces saying, okay, this is now your responsibility. We're not doing it anymore. And so uh, this is going to create the, the normal back and forth tension between federal and, and provincial governments. And I think within the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, uh, we're, we're going to see some key elections in provinces and, of course, at the federal level uh, that's going to really shape, too, the way that that policy plays out uh, and, and the, the tension and the balance between province and federal. I'm glad you explained that without using the dreaded da downloading word, uh, which is which is just you know, that sends people gathering and all because that's the trickle down economics that we don't want to see here. Of course, where you know the senior levels of government just say, "What well, am I paying for this? You guys do," and it eventually trickles down as we've seen uh, in the history, history and to to municipal levels and property taxpayers. It's it's a terrible way to do this. But uh, as I say, when people are trying to get rid of debt and try to find efficiencies, as they say it, uh, it can be a pretty messy. Time. So as much as we're looking forward to the reopening uh, and looking forward to getting back out there and spending our money and having a lot of fun, uh, I think it's pretty safe to say that there's going to be some pretty tough economic times I had as we try to get out of the, this huge debt that we've accumulated. We haven't paid much attention to it, but it's going to be there, isn't it? 
for sure. And, and you know, the thing is that when we, we talk about the economy, usually we're talking, you know, at the macro level. We're talking about how's Canada doing or how's the province doing. But the reality is that even though the economy might be doing well, there's a tremendous amount of churn and burn that's going on at the micro level, right? In any given situation, even in a non-pandemic world, right, you know, there's some sectors that are in the ascendant and some that are in the descendant. So the fact is that we're going to see in a post-pandemic world that, you know, there's some industries that are going to not just recover, but they're going to thrive. And there's some that are just never going to recover because the world will have changed to some extent. And you and I have talked in the past about, you know, for example, that retail might have irrevocably changed in a way that now that we've gotten used to sitting in our pajamas on our bed, ordering stuff and it comes within 24 hours uh how many people want to like have to get dressed up and go out to the mall and go try on stuff when you can have it delivered and you can try it on in front of your own mirror uh you know those type of industries then might find that it's a really tough going even with government support because the business model has changed for for good well, we've seen that, haven't we, with a lot of retail businesses that have had to, to pivot, obviously, and start using online. Uh, and uh, I, I think a high percentage of the ones that, that have been surveyed so far said they're probably going to continue to do that. They're going to open their doors again. Uh, but they've understood that there's a, a market, a growing market for, for online shopping right now. So uh, your point about things never being the same, I guess, is well taken. Moshe, always a pleasure to have you on the program. Thanks so much for your perspective on this. Uh, stay well, and hopefully we'll talk again soon. Anytime. Take care. Take care. Moshe Lander, of course, Senior Economist and Lecturer at Concordia University. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Just kind of dovetailing off our conversation with uh, Moshe uh, just before uh, the break uh, about opening up and about the messaging from government. Uh, we're starting to get some positive signs, and, and there are a number of different factors involved in that, of course, and we're going to get into those in just a couple of minutes. Uh, but one of them, of course, was the announcement uh, made at the beginning of this week uh, that Ontario is going to be accelerating its return to play plan for professional and elite amateur leagues as the province loosens COVID-19 restrictions. Uh, there's been a lot of pressure from organizations, and we've talked to a number of those organizations over the last little while, but it looks as if uh, that light at the end of the tunnel got a lot closer. As a matter of fact, it's there for an awful lot of them. Joining us to talk about the methodology for how this is going to roll out is uh, Lisa McLeod. Lisa, of course, is the Provincial Minister of Heritage, Sport, Tourism, and Culture Industries. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for the time. Great to have you back with us on the program today. Yeah, thanks so much, Bill, for having me on. Really excited to talk about this topic. Well, this is exciting. I mean, I, in, in anticipation of this, and I know that you've been getting a lot of pressure from a lot of groups. Uh, I think one of the most telling signs was probably about an hour after you announced this the other day. Uh, the CFL Board of Governors unanimously said, "Yeah, let's play the season." So that that was really the green light they were looking for, I guess. And a lot of other organizations are are in the same situation, I would think. Yeah, you know what? I finished my uh, statement by saying, let's play ball. Let's get the football back up and running. Let's get the uh, basketball and uh, our baseball and, and let's get hockey back up and running. It's been a long 16 months and we felt uh, through the, our work with uh, the various leagues that they were capable of uh, dealing with the thresholds that have been basically modeled after the AHL and NHL return to play. Uh, it's not going to be easy on the organizations, but I think it's achievable. And uh, I think it's, it's a signal of hope that uh, once we start getting more people vaccinated, less COVID cases, um, there is light at the end of this tunnel. And it's been a long, long tunnel. What indicators were you looking for, and, and you and your, your cabinet colleagues, uh, to be able to move to this direction? Was it the vaccination rate? Uh, the fact that cases are gone down, I'm sure, is tied to that. Or is it a combination of the two? Yeah, so, so there is a return-to-play model set out in the Step 1, Step 2, Step 3 framework that the province released, but that would be for more minor and amateur sports. So for this accelerated return-to-play for our professional sports organizations as well as the elite amateur, uh, we felt that when the cases went down, they had the capacity within their organizations to do a number of things, uh, deal with accommodation, transportation for their players, um, uh, how they keep their um, their uh, areas sanitized rigorously, uh, making sure that they were able to maintain the distancing, having professional um, you know healthcare on site, and that sort of thing. So we l- released the framework with uh, with that set of criteria, and with that criteria, they'll be able to uh, to return to play. And I'm confident they're all going to meet it. And I'm excited that uh, this means uh, the, you know the Blue Jays and the uh, and um, uh, the Raptors might be able to come home. 
Well, I know that yeah, they'd love to come back from Buffalo and, and start playing games, of course, in Toronto once again. Uh, Toronto FC is looking forward to getting back to BMO Field. Uh, we should mention, by the way, though, because I know I'm going to get emails about this, uh, the jurisdiction as to whether or not Americans can go back and forth here, and you know, and, and the Jays can play the, the Yankees or the Red Sox. Uh, you know, the cross-border stuff, that's a federal uh, jurisdiction, as I understand it, Minister. I know you're in contact uh, with the federal government about that, but it's ultimately their call as to whether or not that's going to happen, isn't it? It is, and so we've we've greenlit them for, at the local level here in Ontario uh, to return to play if they so choose. So, but it is a, it is going to be a federal matter as we've seen with the NHL, right? And so that's going to be something that uh, we'll continue to have conversations on, and I'm sure uh, the Jays and the Raptors will as well. But uh, at, at least on our end, we're confident that uh, those leagues will be able to participate um, in a safe uh, and sanitized way. And, uh, and and making sure that we uh, limited the spread of COVID-19. And eventually, you know what, getting fans in stands is something that we're going to work on with them as well. So, you know, I, I just think that there's it's, there's been a lot of pressure that's been relieved from the system. And uh, it, it's just great to be able to say, you know what, um, the Red Blacks, the Argos, the Thai Cats, uh, you know, go at it, guys, and, and let's have a great cup. How do you see that rolling out? Uh, if you could maybe just identify for our listeners uh, how that phased-in approach would be. I, I, I just want people to understand, you're not just going to open the gates and say, okay, everybody can go to the football game now. Uh, there's, uh, as, as they've done in many other sports, uh, this is going to be done incrementally. Is there a, a way that you've already laid this out right now so we can anticipate what steps are going to be? Yeah, we had a group uh, led by MLSC, um, but included the Senators and, uh, and our uh, three, uh, well, I guess two other um, CFL teams. And uh, so we're working with them right now. Um, I can tell you, like, we're looking at, uh, in terms of retail and, and restaurants, we're looking at capacity limits that will eventually increase over time, uh, first outdoors and then indoors. And so I can see that gradual approach uh, taking hold here as well. Uh, so I don't see it happening in the immediate term. But I do see it, uh, I, I do feel confident that if health conditions continue the way they are and we continue to, t- to trend with cases, um, you know, under 500, under 200, and um, we start to see uh, double dosing of vaccinations. And this is the big, the big thing, right, to your listeners, get vaccinated. If you can, get vaccinated because the, the quicker we get, you know, the population vaccinated, the, the more quickly we'll get into step three, which is when you start to see more of this uh, type of activity being opened uh, throughout the province. Now, that's that's for the spectators. Uh, are there any requirements as far as the, the athletes themselves are concerned uh, to be vaccinated, not to be vaccinated? I, I, let's face it, now that you've you've loosened these restrictions, uh, both the Red Blacks, Ticats, the Argos, everybody, I mean, they're going to start training camp in, in just a few weeks now. Uh, hopefully those Americans that are back, coming back across the border uh, – are you going to insist on on vaccinations at that stage? We haven't insisted on vaccinations. We're strongly encouraging everyone to get vaccinated. Um, and we're strongly, obviously, encouraging uh, testing and screening. Um, and actually, that's part of the framework. So uh, they, they would require uh, that, that level of testing to make sure that there was no COVID brought in. Um, there will also be um, recommended isolation for about seven days. So, the, so we want to make sure that when they come into that environment, it's a clean environment, meaning no one's carrying COVID-19 into it. And I'll just point to the two successful models that we had with both the NHL and the AHL. Um, you know, we, we didn't hear of a player um, on the Senators or on the Leafs uh, that, that uh, contracted COVID. In fact, their screening was so effective that they were able to turn people away that, that uh, did t- test positive. And so we want to make sure that that, that uh, standard is upheld make sure that the players obviously are safe and that uh, so are the coaching staff and their families because, you know, many of them are, are going back and forth to their own homes. So uh, I think that that's going to be the big issue, and we're just simply excited. Now, have you laid out uh, the, the protocol as to how they should be tested? Is it going to be done on a daily basis? Uh, I, I, they'll, they'll work with us. I know that it was three times a week with, with I think, the NHL, so we'll okay. look at those protocols. But I, I think probably before they, they enter the arena um, or the stadium or – the pitch or whatever they'll have to uh, they'll have to be tested uh, and that will come at obviously an expense so some people are asking you well if you're letting this group in but not the other groups uh, quite frankly they, there's a financial capacity to this as well because uh, the, the, the testing and the, the sanitation protocols themselves uh, will be a bit more expensive than in uh, pre-COVID-19 days. Well, and we've already seen some examples of that. Yesterday we were talking with uh, Matt Affinick from the Tiger Cats, the COO, uh, and they've already made some allowances. Our training camp's going to be at Tim Horton Field. They're not going to do it at McMaster. Uh, and they'll, I guess instead of going to the dormitories, they're going to be in a hotel downtown. I don't know which one it is yet, but th- that's self-quarantining, I guess. And I would imagine the Red Blacks and the Argos will be doing the same thing. 
Yeah, I think so. And and I know that uh, I know the Red Blacks. I'm not, I'm not at home today in Ottawa. Pretty excited about this. And uh, we've been leading, uh, dealing with the MLSE uh, through the Argos and others uh, throughout the entire pandemic. And and so the, you know, I think they're 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 pretty pretty good as well. So we're just excited. You know, I've had many many conversations with Scott Mitchell about how we get this uh, back up and running. And so I'm confident that that our CFL teams are going to be able to meet that threshold and the criteria. And I'm confident that they're going to be able to do it safely. And I'm really excited. Like I said, of of, uh, of making sure that we're able to land uh, the Grey Cup safely in in Ontario and in Hamilton this year, I think that that's going to be a real touchstone moment for all of us. Absolutely. Well, we've got till December twelfth, I guess, to get those numbers down and get as many people into the stands, uh, and that's that's kind of the race we're looking for right now. What about those those fans in the stands? We just talked about the testing, etc., for the athletes themselves, Minister, uh, to be allowed back in when you start that incremental increase and allowing people back into the sporting events. Uh, is there going to be a requirement for vaccination? I mean, there's been some talk down in the states and over in in the UK about about vaccine passports. You know, you can't get into the soccer pitch, or you can't unless you've pro- proof of vaccination. Do we go there, or is that up to the individual municipality? Well, I think we're always going to consult with the Chief Medical Officer of Health and our local public health units. Um, obviously, we had 550 uh, fully vaccinated uh, fans in the stands for the last Leafs game. Uh, we'll see how that, that turns out. We are closely monitoring what fans in the stands look like outdoors and indoors, um, not just for sports, but also for other live entertainment, like live music, performance mm-hmm. arts, the ballet, the opera, that sort of thing. And so we want to make sure that uh, when we land on something, uh, that it will be widespread applicable to to uh, to both sport and entertainment. Um, and so that, that work is ongoing, and we're going to see how we can get there um, safely uh, at the appropriate time. So you know, I think a lot of this will hinge on what a fourth wave looks like. Uh, if it if it hits Ontario, um, obviously we are um, taking every precaution we possibly can at the moment, and and continuing to review what the Delta variant looks like. And uh, and it's all very complex, and it's all very much tied to um, uh, you know w- when we reopen, what the health conditions are at that expressed moment. So it's always hard hard to predict where we're going to be. I didn't think a year and a half ago we'd be still into this. Um, I, I, thought, I don't think anybody you know, did. Yeah, yeah. I don't think we ever expected this was going to last longer and cut deeper than SARS, 9/11, and the global economic crisis put together. Right, and so this is uh, there's there's no uh, you know pardon the pun, but no playbook uh, for where we're at. So we're just we're we're continuing to work with our stakeholders, doing jurisdictional scans, seeing what's happening elsewhere in the world, and how people uh, can keep their COVID numbers down um, after they they gather um, mass gatherings and, and you know distancing, screening, all of that is going to continue to, I think, be part of our lives for uh, the next foreseeable future. How important was it to get out with this announcement now? I mean, it's very timely, obviously, for the CFL. Uh, and, and we've talked about, you know, the professional teams, the Blue Jays and, and FC, and, and, of course, Hamilton Forge, uh, the soccer team here in Hamilton. But but for the other teams, and, and I'm thinking, first of all, junior hockey, the Bulldogs and the, and, and the 67s and people of this, they, they needed this assurance, I guess, too. I mean, they've got to start planning for next season, don't they? Yeah, and I mean the the toughest thing with the OHL, right, was the we were ready to give them clearance, and then the health conditions changed overnight, mm-hmm. and it just became untenable. And and you don't want to infect uh, a young athlete and and give them long standing respiratory issues for the rest of their lives when they were on their way to the NHL, right? So we had a lot of considerations at the time. What this allows uh, right now, it allows them to get back on the ice uh, to start training, to start playing. If they choose to do a tournament model uh, or a showcase uh, this summer. They can do that now, and uh, and they can do it, and we know they can do it safely because they'll have met the thresholds and the criteria. So we uh, we were working with all of these leagues. Uh, this was about two weeks ago, I had uh, all of them on the line. Um, quite quite remarkable, actually. You know, six different sports. Uh, we're dealing with eighteen different leagues um, and international single sport events uh, like like the National Bank uh, uh, Cup in, um, in, in tennis. And, and just really remarkable to see the collaboration between all of the different sports and all of the different leagues and, and really coming together to say, okay, this is, we agree on a safe return uh, forward. Um, so, you know, it was an, an interesting line of sight. And t- you know, we would never in the ministry ever probably have worked with and collaborated with our professional sports leagues the way we have because of the pandemic and, uh, and, and to really be able to collaborate. And I really feel that as we come out of the pandemic, they're going to play a, a big role in helping us uh, get to a place where minor sports um, are going to be back uh, and, and, and restoring confidence for moms and dads that their kids can safely return to play in you know, basketball, soccer, football, hockey, lacrosse, 
tennis, whatever, um, because I know there's a lot of hesitancy out there right now still um, with, with a lot of people in the population uh, really worried about re-engaging in their former activities. And so, you know, they're going to play a really critical role in helping us uh, revitalize sport in Ontario uh, post-COVID. Have you set a bar there, Minister, for for that? Because I'm I'm hearing from, and I know you certainly are in your office, uh, from some of these organized sports, youth sports leagues, soccer, baseball, softball. I mean, you run the limit here. Uh, And they're saying, hey, what about us? When is it going to be our turn? It's summertime. We need to get organized as well. Uh, What what criteria are you looking for to be able to say, okay, let's let's move ahead on that? Yeah, so they're they're captured in the steps, one, two, and three. That's what we just announced was acceleration. Uh, for a certain few. Uh, but, you know, dry land training and drills are acceptable here in step one, outdoors, of course. Uh, in step two, they'll be able to do uh, scrimmages and more practices, that sort of thing. And then step three, uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, more outdoor and indoor activity where we can get kids playing hockey again, uh, inside or basketball again inside. And um, so those conditions will be met hopefully this summer and hopefully by August, uh, there'll be that level of certainty. The other thing that we've done is we've invested into a group, um, several million dollars, into a group called Sports for Ontario. And they are um, people that have uh, rose, risen through the provincial sport organizations, the national sport organizations, uh, and work with the Canadian Sport Institute on how to uh, leverage our relationships with the professional um, organizations, uh, as well as with our, our 66 uh, provincial sport organizations, uh, to really build back sport uh, bigger and better. And so we're really focused on that. But this summer, um, hopefully by the end of August, um, we should be in a place where um, most of our sports are back up and running and, um, and, and, and kids are out there playing soccer and, and just enjoying being kids again and, and doing what they should do best, which is play. I know that you need to be cautious about this, and we just heard from Dr. Tam a few minutes ago talking about, you know, the, the variants and, and the Delta variant especially, and, and we know we're concerned about that, and the vaccinations seem to be helping about that. But uh, because of the way the numbers have looked over the last little while, of course, your government's actually accelerated uh, the, the, the provincial rollout program for businesses, et cetera. Uh, is there a concern here that, 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 that you might be able to move a little more quickly on some of these other things if the numbers continue to drop? Uh, and, and well, I guess inversely, you know, vaccinations up, uh, new cases down, uh, that maybe you might accelerate that process and to step one, two, and three? Yeah, we want to be cautious. Uh, this is something, you know, obviously my sectors were hit first hardest and we'll take the longest to recover. So the health minister is very well aware of where I stand on that, but I'm also very well aware of where she's at and making sure that ICU capacity um, is not overtaxed, that our hospitals aren't overrun, looking after our frontline workers who have not taken a break in 16 months. So we're, we're really trying to balance both things. But with the, with the variant of concerns coming in, particularly the Delta variant, um, it, it is one of the things that we continue to watch. So uh, I don't know if we'll be accelerating it uh, much more, but I do know that if we continue to cautiously um, you know, reopen the economy, reopen uh, sport, at the same time as everybody, you know, getting vaccinated, and I can't say this enough, get vaccinated if you haven't uh, taken your appointment yet, um, that that will get us to a, a, a closer return to normal um, than than what we've seen in the past 16 months. And, and that's really important to the sectors that I represent. You know, I, uh, I have tourism, culture, sport, and heritage, so all of our museums are closed, all of our galleries are closed. Um, you know, tourism came to a crashing halt Um Sport, as we know, it wasn't continuing, and so it's it really is um, live music. It has been decimated. So, uh, you know, from my perspective, if we can get the healthcare crisis under control, that's the best way for us to get uh, uh, back to reopening the economy. And so, we all have a role to play. Um, you know, government does, and individuals do, and uh, hopefully, we'll be able to get to a point where. Uh, you know, COVID-19 will be a distant memory, and we will, you know, return to what what our new normal will look like. I'm glad you brought that up because I wanted to remind our listeners about the scope of your ministry. I know we're talking about sports clearly, and that's that's a very important part of this. But, uh, you know, when you go into tourism and culture industries as well, uh, you know, there's live theater in just about every one of the major cities here in Ontario, and they've gone dark for the longest while. You know, we heard the Broadway is going to reopen in the fall. We'd like to think that maybe that can happen in Toronto and other areas too. But, again, it's it's that's under your purview. But, again, it depends on the numbers, doesn't it? Yeah, it, it always the health conditions will always dictate um, when our sectors in this ministry uh, reopen. So uh, that's why I'm always appealing to folks to, to to stay safe and follow the public health guidelines because 
you know, the quicker we get out of this, um, the quicker those sectors get back up and running. And, uh, you know, I, I love going to, for example, the Hamilton Art Gallery is one of the most beautiful in the country. Would love, to, you know, to get back there. Um, you know, Niagara Falls is our number one tourism destination mm-hmm. um, in the country, right? And of a city of 90,000 people, 44 of them, 44,000 of them, I think, lost uh, their jobs. So it's really important for all of these sectors uh, to come back and uh, uh, they, they create big jobs. You know, who would have known? That these sectors we represent um, are responsible for $76 billion in economic activity, um, have over half a million jobs. They're really the backbone of each one of our communities, if you think about it. And, um, you know, they, they have an economic imprint that is larger than the GDP of Manitoba. And that's spectacular. Um, so we, we just, uh, they're a big part of our economy as well as our social fabric. And, you know, what brings us joy? Hockey, uh, football, um, live music. You know, it's it, it's the things that bind us together as Canadians um, that are right now shuttered. So it's really it's really going to be important to get them back up. Well, it's a great first step, and uh, as I say, there's a process in place, and we as uh, spectators or potential spectators and as citizens have a role to play too. As you say, uh, we'll end this one the same way we began it: get vaccinated, everybody. Uh, exactly. Lisa, Lisa McLeod, uh, thank you so much for the time, Minister, and uh, stay well, and we'll talk again soon. I'm sure. Yeah, thanks so much, and you you keep well too, Bill. Take care. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. We want to focus in on uh, what has happened here in this country uh, vis-a-vis Indigenous issues uh, for the last couple of days, especially in uh, light of the uh, discovery, of course, at Kamloops. And it's uh, interesting to see what's going to be happening here in the province of Ontario. And an announcement that you heard right here on the show uh, just about 24 hours ago, uh, over the next three years, the Ontario government will be spending about $10 million to help identify and commemorate burial sites at former residential schools. Global's Brianna Carnegie has the details. Like all Ontarians, I was heartbroken by the tragic news that a burial site had been found at a former residential school in Kamloops, British Columbia. Premier Doug Ford says we grieve for each of the 215 children who lost their lives. He describes the work ahead in Ontario as painful but necessary. And we must confront what happened for reconciliation to be achieved. The process for investigating school sites in Ontario will be established with Indigenous leaders. It will also involve archaeologists, forensic specialists, historians and other experts. There have been 12 unmarked burial sites identified in Ontario by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, but it's believed there are likely more. Brianna Carnegie, Global News. So what are the ramifications of that? Well, let's uh, talk to Dr. Paulette Stevens about that. Uh, Dr. Paulette Stevens is the uh, Cree Métis Indigenous Archaeologist, Associate Professor of Sociology, and a Canada Research Chair in Healing and Reconciliation at Ontario's Algoma University. Uh, Dr. Stevens, thank you so much for the time. I'm glad you could join us today. Oh, thank you for inviting me. If we could just right off the top, maybe your, your uh, read on, on what happened yesterday, the, uh, the Ford government's announcements about the, the money that's going to be allocated for this, uh, this work. Well, I think it's a, it's a start. I don't think it's enough. I, I think for this work of finding unmarked burial, uh, they need to have an open-ended budget a- until the work is done. There are many, many sites uh, within Ontario and within Canada, not just residential schools that the federal government funded, but residential schools that have been operating since uh, as early as 1620. Why have we paid so little attention to this? I mean, on a national basis. Well, Canadians' understanding of Indigenous people and Indigenous issues has been informed through political bias linked to historical processes of colonization. And that includes not only colonization of the land, of education, of Indigenous people, it's colonization of the minds of all people through public and general education. So, Curriculum in Canada has historically ignored or erased Indigenous people in places uh, from the land and from history. And this remains, sadly, a mainstay in processes of colonization. There's a survey, I'm sure you saw the results of this as well, Doctor, that uh, suggested that 66% of the Canadians who were surveyed knew little to nothing about residential schools, period. I mean, it was in many jurisdictions, it's not even in the curriculum, uh, the, and the jurisdictions and where they do mention it, uh, invariably it, it's done with a positive attitude, a positive spin, like what a wonderful thing they did back to, to those children back in those days to, to, you know, to bring them into school, to educate them and, and teach them about religion. Uh, that's the history we've learned. And so it's, I guess that's 
it's no wonder then that we we've seemed to have this this attitude of what's the big deal here until we saw what happened in Kamloops. Right. People have not been informed. They should have been informed through education, but in educational institutions, Western knowledge production remains deeply vested in discussions that erase and dehumanize Indigenous people and herofy, make heroes out of people that of colonizers that came from other lands. So this is an epistemic violence, and it maintains ongoing colonization and racism. And as, and as you mentioned, it not only impacts Indigenous people, it impacts non-Indigenous people because their understanding of Indigenous people and histories is not informed. So this has also been linked to historical and ongoing social and political disparities and discrimination within contemporary populations. So when you inform uh, the general population through education of the truth of, of how, um, you know, the government has treated Indigenous people across time, they're going to change their views of Indigenous people. Right? People need to be informed. Students aren't taught that there was a genocide in this country and that that's linked to ongoing, you know, educational disparities and the exclusion of Indigenous knowledge and history and academic curriculum um, has been designed. I mean, the Ford government in 2018 canceled a program that was set to start on indigenizing curriculum in Ontario. Like, why would you do that? It's a very important thing that all everyone in the population is informed of the full history of Canada. And when they're not informed, this is what you see. They don't understand history, and they don't understand the impact, the ongoing impact of history on Indigenous people and on themselves. Is, is the discovery of Kamloops going to change that attitude, do you think, Doctor? Yes, um, I think it will change that attitude. I think it's very important, all the press coverage on this, because that makes uh, the government then has to respond. And they did respond very quickly. This is something that's always been known. So it's really surprising in a way that people aren't aware of this since we have the TRC and we had survivors' testimonies talking about the number of children that died. Uh, the children they were forced to bury, the violence. And yet the government is still withholding records on that violence against Indigenous children at residential schools. So, you know, we really need the government to step up to provide those records. The TRC has called for those records. The survivor has called for those records. Let these things get known to the general public. Let these things get into education. They are very difficult topics, but they are an absolute fact of the history of Canada. So that that students are not taught about the history of state-sanctioned institutional violence against Indigenous people and the ongoing impacts of colonization and intergenerational trauma reflects an ongoing process of colonization. So you have to have this picture. Colonization was like a giant whirling jigsaw that just decimated First Nations, Inuit and Métis families across decades of violence. And now Indigenous communities, they're searching for those shreds of jigsaw pieces to put themselves, their families, their communities back together. So for many Indigenous people that were scattered by the forces of colonization, the work of reassembling their identities, their families, finding thousands of unmarked burials at residential school, this becomes a path to healing and to bringing those children home. So it's it's very important work, and it's important that this work gets included in all education. But for that to happen, we as a society, though, I would think, Doctor, are going to have to face some of our own uncomfortable truths about our history and, and, and what we've done in the past, past generations, uh, because this is this is not unique to Canada. I mean, just about every piece of history that we've talked about, uh, we had people that were coming from Europe or from England, wherever it was, uh, exploring the quote-unquote new world, and wherever they went, they would send missionaries basically to convert people to their faith to their way of life and to give up uh in the indigenous people seem to be threatened and some religions are still doing that to this day uh that sending people out there and saying look at you you're wrong this is the religion you should be doing this is the lifestyle you should be living we're, we're not over that yet we're still doing it and we, we we have not yet accepted the fact that that was the wrong thing to do 
Right. It's, it's a very difficult uh, discussion, and there is a global history in almost every country of indigenous peoples uh, who have lived through colonization, uh, attempted genocide, and it's ongoing. And when you don't include the truth in education, you're continuing that. So hopefully this is a, is a turning point where we will now uh, get, get the funding that was called for by the TRC to add Indigenous knowledge and Indigenous history and the facts about how Canada treated Indigenous people into curriculum. Because it's not just an acknowledgement. It's an education that informs people's minds. So people's minds have been colonized to think in the way that the nation state that Canada wants them to think. They want them to see Canada as this benevolent benefactor that took care of people and gave them land. They don't want people to know that, you know, initially the land was all stolen. People were cheated out of the land. There was forced acculturation. Thousands of children died. And that's another thing that remains hidden that's, that's got to start coming out in discussions is the number of children that likely died. So Bryce reported in 1922 um, between 24 to 75% mortality rate at residential schools. So even the minimal number of only the federal schools, they're saying there was 150,000 children. So what's 24 to 75% of that, right? It's a lot more than the 6,000 children they claim died. Minimally, it's over 24,000. And that's only the federal schools. There were hundreds of schools, not just the federally funded schools. So there's a lot that needs to come into the conversation to be acknowledged and indigenous communities need to be at the center of this work and at the center of creating the curriculum and decolonizing the curriculum for Canada. But you talked about truth and, 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 and education and two key elements in this, Doctor, obviously. But information has to be part of that, too. And I mean, even is in light of, of all of the, the publicity that's been gained because of the, the terrible tragedy that was discovered in Kamloops, uh, my understanding is the religious order that ran that school is still refusing to hand over records of what's going on. Uh, that's 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 got to stop. And there's got to be some government intervention, I would think, at that level to simply say, look, we have to have the truth. We need facts here. Right. So institutions, churches, governments, they don't want to hand out records because they know there's a financial liability for the damage that's been done. So they're trying to protect themselves. So it's really sad that you see these so-called benevolent organizations that want to support and help, you know, Indigenous people and all Indigenous people, and they live by this, you know, word of God. Yet here they are not handing over documents so that Indigenous communities can learn maybe what happened to their children and how they died or the things that went on in those schools that were documented um, because there's a financial liability linked to that. And that's just really sad. And yes, there does need to be government intervention. All institutions that have this uh, history and that's linked to the deaths of Indigenous children need to hand over all documentation. Well, and the government has a role to play here, and the government needs to look in the mirror, too. I mean, as, as you and I sit here having this discussion this morning, Doctor, uh, we know that the federal government is actually fighting uh, one of the recommendations from the, the, the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about compensation for the victims of the, uh, these residential schools. And, and uh, they're trying to negotiate prices instead of simply saying, yes, we have to accept culpability in this. Uh, and that's an ongoing legal battle that shouldn't be happening. Yeah, there, there are a number of ongoing legal battles where the federal government is... Um, they're not they're not honoring the truth and reconciliation commission they're not willing to share records they're not willing to own up to their culpability or their liability in the damage done to people i mean and this isn't this isn't you know so historical that that we don't know about it there are people lots of survivors walking around today sharing their stories right and they have a right to have those documents and, and the communities have a right to request those documents. And the federal government, um, and there are people calling for them to drop their, their fight against compensation for survivors of day schools. 
you know, and it wasn't just residential schools and day schools. There were Indian hospitals where children were forced to stay for five, six, eight years. So there's a lot. There's a lot of places on the land where we need to have the work done to find unmarked burials. And the federal government um, needs to stop sort of playing two sides of the coin where they're trying to protect their purse on one hand and they're saying, well, they support all this on the other. No, they don't. Doctor, there's a lot of discussion since the Kamloops uh, situation was was discovered. Uh, the Ontario government has responded, and I agree, it's, it's not enough, but, I mean, it's a start, and that, that's something. Federal government's making noises like that. How do you keep this discussion going? How do you ensure that this, like so many other times, just doesn't fade into the into the histories and, and the distant past, that we just forget about it so quickly? Well, I think a lot of uh, First Nations, Inuit, and Métis communities have stepped up. A lot of survivors have stepped up. I think the press and the media have a really important role to play that they keep covering this and they don't let this go silent. And, you know, we're seeing every week more reports, like now in Brandon, Manitoba, there's been 104 uh, possible graves located. So now that this work is beginning, you're going to see this probably every month where more unmarked burials are found. But the one thing that's very, um, very good is to see that the general population is stepping up and supporting this in many, many ways. So now that now they're aware and it's kind of like clicked on a light in their head, like, oh, my goodness, they were telling the truth. Like this really happened. What can we do to help? So you're seeing people step up to help. You're seeing it a lot on social media and in the press. And that really needs to keep up. But I think is more work is done and and more of the children are found that um, this conversation is going to keep going for a number of years. This is just the tip of the iceberg, just the beginning of bringing children home. We will uh, continue and endeavor to continue these discussions as they happen too. Uh, Doctor, thank you so much for spending some time with us this morning and thank you for the great work that you're doing uh, to to bring this issue front and center and uh, hopefully we can talk again soon. I'd like to think about some progress that's being made here. Thank you again though. Thank you for inviting me. Dr. Paulette Stevens uh, from Algoma University, uh, Cree, Métis, Indigenous archaeologist, uh, very concerned about what's going to be happening. Isn't it sad and a sad commentary that what may keep this discussion alive is the discovery of just how enormous this and the magnitude of, uh, of what went on back then uh, becomes a realization to us as we discover more graves. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. The Bill Kelly Podcast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts from. You can also listen to The Bill Kelly Show weekdays from 9 till noon on 900 CHML. I'm Bill Kelly. Thanks again for listening. And don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free, so you never miss an episode. And make sure that you rate and review.